0: Well, um we're gonna try today to, to wrap up um, Hebrews chapter eleven in this series of, of talks on gospel, faith in the old testament and, and Brad was gigging me uh earlier about my exegesis of Hebrews eleven forty. And uh I'm gonna confess that that I'm gonna give it a lick and a promise, but I'm not happy with it, so uh, I'm gonna have to come back and uh and, and deal with Hebrews 11:40 because a, uh, it's bothering me, and uh, and and so, um, and and also strategically because in January when we start talking when we start studying through First John and fellowship, um, and, and and fellowship. What is fellowship in the body? There is something to be said for Hebrews 11:40, um, contextually with the Hebrew Christians being written to here in their context. And the spiritual reality of what fellowship is, and um, and our togetherness with them, and the universal body of Christ, and there's just so much here. Um, and we were talking about this in a meeting with our deacons who are reading uh, Bonhoeffer, uh, Life Together, um, because next week we're going to study the life of Bonhoeffer in our All Saints Day talk. Um, and so I'm going to try not to launch into Bonhoeffer now because I'm raring and ready and. Don't know exactly how to handle that, but um, we're going to do that next week. And um, Hebrews chapter eleven, here, um, verse thirty-nine through chapter twelve, really verse four, is the conclusion to to this exposition on the writer of Hebrews' part to these Hebrew Christians on on faith and how it's lived out, and and how the examples he gives them are obviously from the Old Testament, Old Testament saints who believed the gospel and. Um, no better conclusion to chapter 11 than the transition to the call of chapter 12. And verse 39 and 40 of chapter 11 provide that, that transition to this glorious capstone of chapter 12, verse 1 to 4. These, that is, in Hebrews, let me just read, read for you. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of god consider him who is who from sinners consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood these old testament saints when he says here in chapter 11 verse 39 all of these that is these all these old testament saints saints that we've been studying looking at as examples of living out the faith here in Rome, Georgia, and wherever our feet land that the Lord would allow us to go, and imitating their example, all these, that is these Old Testament saints who've been studying, were all commended for their faith, in the sense that God testified to their faith and made them witnesses of true faith for others. That is, all these though commended through their faith. God witnessed, that is, spoke to the fact that their faith was legitimate and real and set them out as examples of true faith for others to imitate. All these, all these commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Although they saw the fulfillment of specific promises, if you go back to chapter 6 verse 15, Um, Chapter 11 here, verse 11 and verse 33, the Lord was faithful to them. The statement isn't that God didn't keep his word. God fulfilled multiple promises to them. Specifically here, he's speaking to the promise of the new covenant in the messianic era. Although they saw multiple specific promises fulfilled in this life, life, none of them got to experience the blessings of the new covenant. In the era of the dawn of the Messiah. Who would come and die in the place of sinners. And send his spirit to indwell his people. They didn't get to see that. They didn't receive that promise. But in his gracious providence. God had planned something better for us. And this is where I hope to come back and and do some more work. In the sense. That their enjoyment of perfection through Jesus Christ. Would only be together with us. That is, that their salvation was secured because Father is gracious to pass over their sins. And, and I put in here in my notes, if you went to grab them, see Romans three twenty-one to twenty-six. He was gracious to pass over their sins. This is this is why Romans three twenty-one to twenty-six, and not to take too much of a rabbit trail here, is the centerpiece of the entire Bible. That God passed over their sins. He, this is why Jephthah, who sacrifices his daughter, that was a sin. And God, in Hebrews 11, as we looked at last week, said, faithful. Sinner, faithful. Why? Not because of his actions, but because of his faith in Christ. And God looked and said, he believes, he trusts. I will pass over his sin, and I will pay for his sin when I send my son to die in his place for his sin. So God had planned something better for us in the sense that their enjoyment of perfection through Christ would only be together with us. Knowing he would pay for their sin at the cross when he put the son to death for their sin and ours who were yet to believe. So this sense that God had something better for us is the same better he had for them. And here's here's what they didn't get that's better. They didn't get indwelling Holy Spirit. You do. And the writer's point here is to stress the enormous glory and privilege of living in these last days. Which, by the way, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 verse 2 defines the last days as all the days from the advent of Christ onward. So you hear crazy like prophecy people talking, I believe we're living in the last days. Well, no duh, been there since Jesus came. Okay? We are in the last days because the last days are marked at the advent of the Son of God. Right? So the writer's point is to stress the enormous glory of living in these last days. Of having the advent of Christ in which He dies for sinners and rises to secure redemption for all who repent and believe. And he's writing to remind them that in the middle of their hard circumstance and their hard struggle, it is a glorious privilege to be living now. It is a joy to be living now. Jesus said in John fourteen twelve, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Isn't that amazing? The better for us is that we get to experience the glorious graces of the new covenant. And together with them at the cross, we are made perfect and made one and unified in the gospel as one body, growing into the head of Jesus Christ. Which is one of the reasons Bonhoeffer told you. Um, it's going to hard stay off Bonhoeffer. Talks about in the life of community that sin. It's never localized to the individual, but sin always affects the community because we're one together. My sin is not isolated from you. My sin, whether you know it or not, affects the ethos, the atmosphere. Because we're one. We're one with Abraham. We're one with Moses. We're one with Isaac. We're one with Jephthah. We're one with each other because Christ, indwelling us by the Spirit, makes us one body. And we grow up into the head of Christ. So you can never be isolated from Christians, which is why the Scriptures in First John are so clear. Isolated Christians are not Christians. You're one body. And to isolate yourself from the body is to say, I know not Christ. Which is why John will tell them, they went out from you to show you they were not of you. So in spite of the difficulty endured by the original readers here, the privilege of living in the last days of the advent of King Jesus is tremendous. You now get the indwelling Holy Spirit to counsel. You have the counselor dwelling in you. By the way, the precious gift and discipline today of counseling Is only modeled after the counselor himself. Which is why only counselors who know and understand the soul because they have the indwelling counselor dwelling in you or in them is worthy of counseling you. Does that make sense? See not counselors whose worldview is rotten. Because we have counselor dwelling in us now. Isn't that awesome? The awesome privilege of having the Holy Spirit dwell in you now. We have Holy Spirit to counsel. We have Holy Spirit to guide to truth. We have Holy Spirit to remind us of what has been said. Those awesome moments in which Scripture pops into mind. I need to hear that. I need that counsel for right now. It's because that's what Holy Spirit does. The tremendous privilege of living in the new covenant promise of the gospel. is a joyous and vitally useful Glory for these Christians in this difficult time of suffering that they are in. Thus having the author write to them to encourage them to stay faithful. So the recipients of this letter would be encouraged to persevere. Because they were living in a day of suffering. And that suffering was mediated through the multifaceted blessings of the new covenant. These witnesses to the gospel... And to gospel, faith showed the original recipients, and they show us because they're put forward as examples. They show us how to run the race of following Christ Jesus in the Great Commission, in faith. And then the writer of Hebrews tells his readers where to run, namely, Jesus. By the way, our goal, our mission is the same. It's not different. Our mission, our end is the same to fix our eyes on Christ and run toward Him and His kingdom in the completion of the Great Commission. It's every church's mission, it's every Christian's mission. You need a life mission? Just gave you one. Now go use your discipline, your skill, your wiring for that mission. Does that make sense? You have a life mission. Remember, Remember, Hebrews 11, 39 and 40 is not the end of this exhortation to live by faith. Remember, the Scriptures don't have chapters and verses. Those are added later to help people read. This is a letter. The writer of this letter puts the capstone of chapter 12, verse 1 to 4 in place and ends with this marvelous statement in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 12. And here's how he ends this exhortation to imitate these faithful ones. He says this, Consider Him who endured such hostility against Himself. Consider Him. Who's Him? Jesus, the mission. The one we're running toward. Consider Jesus, who endured such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You're weary, faint-hearted? Consider Jesus. Put your eyes on Christ. Run toward Him. Right? That's the instruction, right? Consider him who endured such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's an interesting statement. Because this passage seems to suggest that our greatest struggle is not against outside forces of evil. But rather, our greatest struggle is against our own personal and maybe corporate sin. Did you catch that? Consider Jesus. If you're worn out, tired, weary, faint-hearted, consider Christ who endured such hostility against Himself. Why? The next sentence. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. Remember, He's writing to people who are persecuted by evil men. And He tells them, and your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So the suggestion is that their greatest struggle in ours is not against the outside forces of evil, but against our own struggle of personal sin and corporate sin. Evil done by outsiders to hinder the gospel is expected. It's expected. Jesus said it would happen, right? So it's not as though we should be, ah, they don't like me. No duh. Jesus said so. It's in the manual. Evil done by outsiders to hinder the gospel is expected. The Lord said it would be the case. That's not to be too uncommon. I think for us it's uncommon, multiple reasons, because we live in Disneyland, and then secondly, are we saying anything about the gospel? Because the gospels portrayed—I'm gonna go stop. That's a rabbit trail. Stop now. I tweeted during the debate about it. So if you follow me on Twitter, you read that. Nobody retweeted that either, by the way. uh, Thanks for hanging me out to dry. No backing up, no love. I got it. I got it. It's good. (laughs) Evil done by outsiders to hinder the gospel is expected. However, it would be sin, and it could be sin that could hinder our response to external difficulty. That could keep us from from pursuing the Lord, wherever He is leading. Because the problem for these guys when they received this letter was that many of them were turning back and abandoning the gospel in the face of this difficulty. And so his writing to them is to encourage them: to stay faithful, don't give up, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, run toward Him, stay faithful. So it could be that sin meaning our response to this external difficulty could keep us from pursuing the Lord wherever He's leading. Perhaps sin here includes others sinning against us, no doubt, to hinder the work of the gospel. But I'm convinced that in light of chapter 12, verse 1 through verse 4, the author is referencing the sin in our flesh that the New Covenant heart fights against. Jesus endured hostilities from men as the sacrifice for our sin. Right? Any hostility we face from men pales in comparison to Jesus taking hostility from men as punishment for the Father as sacrifice for my sin. Did you hear that? That that let me say I mean, say that again. That's that's real important. Jesus endured hostility from men as the sacrifice for our sin. Any hostility we face from men pales in comparison to Jesus taking hostilities from men as the punishment from Father as sacrifice for my sin. In other words, if you take hostility from men, it's not you paying for somebody else's sin. That's already been done for you. Therefore, any hostility we receive pales in comparison to the death Christ died for my sin and my rebellion. Therefore, our great struggle will not be from the hands of men. Our great struggle will be against sin. Think about how you've wrestled with situations now. It's not so much, oh, they said this, or oh, they did that. It's, how do I respond? Am I going to respond? Am I going to do anything? Am I going to say anything that matters? Right? Right? How can we? And this is the question I want to ask, and and we'll try to get through try to get through a point here um, to help to help you answer this question because it's a vital question. How can we, in light of chapter twelve, verse one through four, how can we successfully wrestle sin to the ground? And pardon my my terminology here. Make it tap out so that we can. With the saints of the Old Testament, be faithful witnesses to the gospel. Do you understand the question? How can we successfully wrestle, as he said, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. How do we successfully wrestle our sinful tendency to the ground and make it tap out so that we can like the saints of the Old Testament, like all the examples we've been looking at, be faithful witnesses to the gospel in our context, right? Because every one of you got to walk out of this room today. You've got to go to work tomorrow. You've got to engage the world around you. You've got to engage the ministry God's given you you got to be faithful there. So how do you walk out of here and engage that ministry with faith in the gospel, continuing to trust Christ not just for your salvation, but to work that out in ministry and making Christ known? How can you imitate the faithfulness of these Old Testament saints in fighting against the temptations of sin, no matter how multiple they are and multifaceted they are to the contrary? Point number one, this one's a no-duh, so apologize for the no-duh nature. Observe great witnesses to gospel faith and imitate their example. How do you wrestle the temptation of sin? And, and by the way, we're going to talk about, because he says here in chapter 1 and 2, he gives some examples. He said, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So we're going to, to get specific there. But the first observation on how to go about imitating the faithful saints of the Old Testament and be faithful with the gospel in your context is, number one, observe great witnesses to gospel faith and imitate their example. Witness here, as we've talked about already, by way of a reminder, does not mean here spectator. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these are not spectators looking down from heaven going, Wow, are they doing well. The word witness means those who've borne witness to what it means to believe the gospel and follow the Lord by faith. In other words, all these people who've lived their lives in such a way that highlights the gospel. Observe these witnesses. Observe their example and imitate their example. We have the examples of scripture that the author of Hebrews has looked at, right? We've looked at multiple examples. We've looked at all the ones here In Hebrews chapter 11. So we continue to look at the examples of Scripture, which is one of the reasons why you need to plow through the manual. You need to plow through Scripture because the Scriptures are littered with examples. Some of my favorites are the ones that we talked about last week because they're frail, sinful creatures. And the Lord said, faithful, which holds out great hope for us, right? That although we're frail and sinful creatures, Christ's sacrifice for our sin is enough. And we can live a life that highlights and makes much of Jesus. And God doesn't look at our sin because Jesus paid for it. He looks at faith and says, faithful. So we continue to plow through the Scriptures. And we take courage by those Scriptural examples. We have saints in Christian history we can read about. This is one of the reasons why you need to continue to read Christian biography. Read about saints who've lived the life of faith before you. We've highlighted for you over the past years here at Three Rivers multiple saints that you can look at and, and, and imitate their example. You know, my Mueller, my favorite. Some of these great saints in history. Some, some well-known, some not so well-known. The only published work of mine is at the University of Georgia in the botany department because of Anaclyce Gamble. You remember her? The Moravian missionary was the first successful mission among the Cherokee, and she was a botanist. Up here on the way to Chatsworth in Fort Mountain State Park, the little Moravian Mission Cemetery, you got to go visit it sometime. I mean, it's, it's not much. But there was gospel work pioneered there by somebody you don't even know who they are. Which, by the way, your name may never be known. And God's not Looking to see if you make it on a Georgia historical marker, but he knows whether or not you believe the gospel and are faithful. It's the reasons I love Anna Gamble. Gambold. So look at their lives. Next week we're going to look at Bonhoeffer. We also have people among us who are living out the faith. What about, what about your deacons who tirelessly serve? Who minister to your needs? Who pray for you when you don't even know they're praying for you? What about the people who are faithful to show up and just set up chairs? You came in, you sat down in a chair and just assumed that chair walked out here. Somebody's faithful every Sunday to show up and set up chairs. Some of the same people are faithful every Sunday to pick up chairs. And that act of service is no greater and it's no less than any other act of service done by faith. Unnamed people who march with a love for Christ and a faithfully serving. Right? Imitate that glorious example. We've got this morning living examples of Levi and Betsy who sold their lives to the advance of the gospel among our people group. Imitate the example. My friend Keith and Marcia Thompson, who's who's working, and I'm so excited to be part of this cool thing that's happening on the Cumberland Plateau, in which this cat is smart. And ever since, like Keith and I've been knowing each other since nineteen ninety three, and and um and, and it's really awesome to see this passion that's been birthed in him for a long time, working itself out into being able to get his hands on a couple thousand acres on the Cumberland Plateau through the easement clause and the tax code. Probably just blew some of your minds. You're like, I don't even know what an easement is. I don't even know what tax code is. Who knows what tax code is? <laughs> through the easement clause and the tax code, and then put a retreat center on it to teach people scripture and Christian worldview to train hurting marriages and teach people how to manage God's money well to launch movements to the nations even though that's happening out of this body but it is so whether some call it a great large work or some faithful unnamed task imitate the examples you see lived out in front of you Right? Yeah. Because as we imitate Christ, there are going to creep upon us multiple, multiple, multiple temptations that will rob us of imitating these glorious examples that have been set down in front of us. Passivity. Lack of courage. To try. Because you don't want to fail. Fail living for the reward that you can get here as opposed to the eternal reward of the kingdom. All right? We're going to close right there. We're going to come back and deal with the rest of this because here's here's what I think. I think that many of us fall in the camp of last week in which maybe we feel like sin and our past have robbed us of the ability to be faithful and serve the Lord. And we looked at those examples last week and we're reminded that the Lord looks through Christ at us and says, faithful, not through the lens of our past. We don't have to be immobilized by the accuser. And then maybe some of us fall in the category of it's not so much our past as it, as it is weight. Wait. As the writer of Hebrews will say in chapter 12, verse 2, rather than laying aside every weight, we have multiple weights. They're not sin, because by the way, he distinguishes between every weight, comma, and sin that clings so closely. He's addressing things that aren't sin, they're not bad, but they just keep you from running well. Cross-country, any cross-country guys in here? Well, okay. People who hate running. Very nice. Any runners in general in here? All right. Very good. When I go watch our cross-country team run, I've yet to see a cross-country runner with combat boots and a sweatshirt and camouflage pants. Because that would be a weight that hinders, right? Wouldn't be a sin to wear combat boots to cross-country meet. Like, hey, go for it, buddy. But that person's not going to compete real well. Maybe... We have lots of weights, things hanging on us that we need to shed that keep us from running toward Jesus well. It's no sin to have them, it's just kind of encumbering, right? Heavy. So I want to say to you this morning in closing if you're still thinking that your sin robs you of being faithful and doing gospel work, repent. Repent. Believe the gospel. That Jesus' work in your place for your sin is enough. And that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Boom. And if you're weighty, if all the cares of stuff, not sin, it's not bad stuff, but it just doesn't let you run well, ask how you can begin to shed those things. Lay them aside. Run this race of the God. Ask those things. Then, 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 go hard. Go hard. Go hard. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray this morning that um, Holy Spirit would have free reign to counsel. Father, for souls this morning who need to be ministered to by the counseling ministry of the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would counsel. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guide into truth for all the 5 million things and you hear my high perfectly Lord that the manual doesn't say specific but we're faced with tomorrow or this afternoon and we need to know what you would have us to do what what is, what is the truth there I pray that you Holy Spirit would guide and give us courage to obey you in spite of what people think Lord I thank you for the example of Bonhoeffer, who had to ask how he was supposed to respond to this work that was the storm that was raging around him. And people didn't agree with his decision, but he sought you out. You answered him, and he went hard. So, Father, I pray that you would guide the truth, your people now, and help them to just go hard for the truth. Informed by your word, moved by the Spirit, and just roll. And then, Father, I pray... For the person here who needs a word from you. Needs to be reminded of what you've said. I pray you'd speak and remind them of what you've said. And would you stir up. Would you cause to well up inside your people. Faith. Gospel faith. Produced by the gospel. Fueled by the gospel. That would work itself out. Into actions. That are running toward you Jesus. And I pray, Father, you'd do that in such a multifaceted way that we can't even keep our hands on it. you launch a movement that's rapid, spontaneous, and multiplying in nature. We need you to do that. We can't, we can't make that happen. We need you to do that. So would you please do that so that Jesus is made much of and we find our great joy in pursuing you, please?